You know, church family, it, it seems like uh, memes are going to be a, a permanent fixture in our culture. And for those of you that don't know what a meme is, uh, it's a, a funny image or a video uh, that's copied and, and spread rapidly uh, by internet users. Uh, so you're scrolling through your, your feed on social media or whatever the case may be, and you see a picture, and it's got this funny description, and you think it's funny, and even if you're by yourself in your vehicle or in your, your home, you laugh to yourself, and you think, I'm going to share this because other people will probably think it's funny too. Uh, and there's some pretty good ones out there that'll make you stop and laugh. And uh, just this week, I, I saw one that I thought was pretty good. And so uh, if, if we can get that up there, uh, who said ministry is stressful? I'm 35 and I feel great. <laughs> um, saw that and it, it resonated a little bit with me. Uh, but the reality is, church family, regardless of what your vocation is, what you do for a living every day of the week, we have uh, moments like this, right? Where we, we feel seasons of discouragement, difficulty, stress, trials, uh, seasons where we feel maybe spiritually dry where we long for an earlier time when we were walking closely with the Lord and we felt his presence daily. We knew for a fact that we were communing with him and and he with us. We desire to be rejuvenated in our our faith, to be filled up again, to be on fire for the Lord like we were at a a time before maybe. Those things are not uncommon. Those things are are not strange to us as Christians. And and if you're here this morning wondering if, if you're the only one, let me reassure you you're not. It's not just you. That we feel like that as believers. It's me. It's all of us that at some point during some season, we've felt that way. Discouraged, depressed, exhausted, worn out, ready to be done. And the good news for us is that the scriptures, the Bibles that we hold in our hands this morning that Kristen has just read from, uh, they encourage us. They're meant to give us truth. They're meant to give us life, uh, to, to charge our batteries, if you will, and to send us back out. For the Lord, and uh, and that's what we see this morning in the life of Paul. Uh, you, you have to go back two weeks if you can do that. I know that's difficult for some of us. Last week we had Harvest Day, and so we weren't in the Book of Acts. But if you can go back two weeks in your mind and remember, we left Paul in Athens. He'd just done some ministry there, and it was not an encouraging time. Uh, he was burning with desire to preach Jesus. He found himself in this city, Athens. It's the the philosophical center of the world at his time. Uh, Intellectual elites from all over the place, they're doing their work, doing their writing. Philosophizing. Yep. They're doing their work there as philosophers, and... uh, and, uh, and Paul is among them, and he desires so badly to, to preach the good news to them. He's walking around this incredible city, seeing all these sights, and all he can think about is sharing Jesus with these folks that are, that, are, that are captured by idolatry. And he does that, and they sort of snub their nose at him. They, they act like they're better, they're more educated, they're, they're more well-rounded than this backwoods country preacher, and they're not going to listen to him. And so Paul, he, he leaves this renowned city that he'd only dreamed of, discouraged and maybe looking for more receptive listeners. He was eager to get out of Athens, and he, and he was so eager to leave that city that he didn't even wait on his missionary team. If you remember, Silas and Timothy are not, are not with him in Athens, and he's so ready to get out of there that he, he doesn't even allow them to catch up. He just, he just goes ahead and he, and he leaves the city. If you can go further back than that, though, this has been a season for Paul of discouragement. Athens wasn't a, a one-time event. As Paul walked the 50-mile journey from Athens to Corinth, where we see him at in our text this morning, I'm sure his mind went back to the last several weeks of his ministry where terrible things had happened. 
I mean, he'd been beaten physically in Philippi. Uh, he, he had been rejected in, in, in Thessalonica and in Berea, rejected such that he was ran out of town. He, he left because they were, they were threatening him. Uh, apathy and mockery is, is what he meets in, in Athens as, as the intellectual elites assume that they're, they're better and more educated than he, and so they won't listen. And so all of these things are compounding, and it leaves Paul feeling uh, beaten up, dejected, discouraged. It's fall, and it's football season. And so I read this illustration from Kent Hughes this week, and I think it fits. It resonated with me, at least, uh, that, that, that Paul probably felt like a football, right? He probably felt like the actual football that has taken all the right bounces and has refused to be fumbled, and yet every time his team scores, it's spiked to the ground and then kicked mercifully, uh, merciful, mercilessly across the field. That's sort of how he feels. And the better that he does the more often that he's spiked and kicked across the field. And this last punt, at least for Paul, had taken him from Athens into Corinth. And it's it's voluntarily. He's not ran out of this town. He leaves on his own will and volition. He's called a seed picker. They call him a seed picker. That these, these philosophers basically say, you're just picking and choosing truths and philosophies and, and not connecting them in a, in a coherent way, and it's humiliating to him. Now, I'm not just guessing this is how Paul felt. You may be thinking, well, Matt, how are you inside of Paul's head? How do you know what he's thinking? Well, we know from Paul's own testimony this to be true. As Paul would like, write back later to the, the, the church in Corinth, the church that he's starting this morning as we read the text together, he writes them a letter later on. It's in your Bibles. It's First and Second Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this is what Paul says. This is his autobiography of his time as he gets to, to Corinth. So listen to what he says about his feelings and, and when he gets there. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is not the image that we usually have of Paul. Usually when I think of Paul, I think of the the mighty pulpit pounding preacher who boldly proclaims the word. He never backs up from an opportunity to preach Jesus. He's the most educated Jew of the day, and, and he'll match wits with anyone. And yet here in his autobiography, Paul suggests something different. He says it was with no lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, the, the, the philosophical sparring that took place at Mars Hill was done. He's done with that. He, was, he felt defeated, outmatched, outwitted, outnumbered. And so when he gets to Corinth, he's still preaching the gospel, but it's just plain, simple explanation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he says it was in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. In, in 1 Corinthians verse three, chapter 2, verse 3, it suggests a man who had, who had been through the ringer. What we see of Paul's own mouth and his own testimony is a picture of Paul who arrives in Corinth in chapter 18 that Kristen just read to us. And it's a man that's been physically beaten, literally beaten, uh, imprisoned, maligned, slandered, humiliated, and then publicly ran out of town after town and so discouraged by the spiritual opposition that he's facing that his zeal is just deflated. It's gone. There's no gas left in the tank. Can we be honest this morning, church? Can we just just be honest with one another this morning? Have you ever been there? Wow, either you guys are the most spiritually encouraged people I've ever seen, or you're all the biggest liars I've ever seen. (laughs) Thank you, Brother Jimmy. Me and you are there. We've been there. 
And I, I could guarantee you there are some of you that are there this morning and, and you didn't raise your hand, but you're there. So discouraged that you don't even want to leave your house. Your circumstance is so overwhelming that you wish you could just run away and leave it all. Start over. Change your surroundings. Change your circumstances. Any of you ever said the words, I'm just done? I'm done. I'm done with it all. Then be encouraged, friends. You're in good company. Because as much as we may feel that way, God is not meaning that we would be there indefinitely. That that would be our status quo. That that would be where we're at as we walk with him. And so he encourages Paul. He brings Paul to this city called Corinth and unplanned by Paul. Notice Paul's not, not on a spiritual retreat here. I just need to get away and recharge. And That wasn't Paul's plan in Corinth, but that's what God brought to Paul in Corinth. And so let's look at the text together. Let's walk through this passage and see some of the ways that God encouraged this brother who's been beaten down spiritually and physically in the last several months of ministry. I'll point out six to us this morning, six ways that God provided encouragement to Paul. The first one is this. God provided encouragement to Paul through other believers. Look at the text with me in verse 1. It says, and, and, and after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come uh, from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all Jews leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So a little bit of backstory here. There's this anti-Jewish stir in Rome. Uh, the historian Suetonius says that it was over one called Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. But what we think, at least from studying history, is that Suetonius was actually misinformed. He didn't understand uh, the name. He was actually meaning Christus, the Christ, but he, he called him Crestus. And, and so this suggests to us, we don't know for sure, but this suggests to us that this disturbance in Rome, this stir that's being brought up and the, the feud, the, the banishment that takes place as a result is over the gospel. That there are some Jews there that have heard the gospel. They believe Jesus to be the Christ, Christus, and there are others that, that do not. And so this feud breaks out. And so because of that, Jews are dispersed. They're saying, hey, you got to get out of town. We're not going to have this commotion. We're not going to have this fighting. And, and perhaps that's how Aquila and Priscilla became believers, or at least first heard the gospel. Either way, this couple makes their way from Rome to Corinth. Uh, and this is sort of like the first Christian power couple, at least that we see in scriptures. If, if you think about the way that they're presented here, Priscilla, maybe even more than Aquila, the husband, is, is a very gifted person. Half of the occurrences that we see of this couple in the Bible, she's mentioned first, before her husband. That's, that's really uncommon in scripture and in uh, the, the, the period that they live in. And regardless, though, they both come to faith in Christ and they both become uh, close friends with Paul. And we know this because uh, later on, Paul will talk about how deeply connected they are, how they're cherished friends. In Romans chapter 16, uh, Paul will refer to them as fellow workers in Jesus Christ, talking about uh, Priscilla and Aquila. He'll also say that they risked their necks for him. So these are the type of friends that would literally put their lives on the line for Paul. And so we can already see how in Corinth, God is putting folks around him. He's putting believers in his path. And we're not sure which one came first. We're not sure if they were believers and then they met Paul or through Paul and his ministry while they're making tents in the, in the, the tent factory. They're, he's sharing the gospel with them and they come to know Christ. But either way, at least by the time Paul writes Romans, these are faithful 
beloved friends. And we can imagine the encouragement that this provided weary Paul, uh, this husband and wife that, that, that are there to, to walk with him and journey with him, even in this discouragement. But if you continue, that's, that's not the only encouragement that the Lord brings through believers. If you look at verse 5, it says this, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. There's a few things to note here. God is continuing to put people around Paul to provide encouragement to Paul through other believers, right? There's a word for us in this church that we are meant to be in community. The Christian life was never meant to be lived on an island in isolation. There should be people in your lives that you're vulnerable with, that know your sin struggles and you know theirs. You hold one another accountable. You're walking with each other through dark days, through discouragement, through depression, those sorts of things. That's how the Christian life was meant to be lived. And and God is doing that for Paul with now Silas and Timothy in addition to uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul is, is, has not spent time with them. Remember, in their missionary journeys, they split ways. And, and so he's been, share, he's been holding the burden of ministry in Athens, and he hasn't seen them since Berea. And then they come back, and they're rejoined, they're, they're reunited in Corinth. And you can imagine the joy that this brought uh, to Paul when they're reunited, his comrades in ministry, laborers, co-laborers in the gospel. But note something else. Note what Paul was doing when they got there. What was he doing in verse 5? You know, we, just, we just read it. He was occupied with the word. He's preaching to Jews about Jesus. So there's some clear application here for us, church. Lean in and don't miss this, that your discouragement is not an excuse for disobedience. Your discouragement is not an excuse for disobedience. It didn't matter that Paul had been through all that he had been through. His circumstances didn't dictate his level of obedience. It's so easy, church family. And I know some of you are here right now. It is so easy to be uh, discouraged, to feel beaten up, to feel uh, downtrodden, and take our eyes off of what Jesus has called us to be about. To, to think that in this season, in this moment, everything's so terrible, I can back away from my commitments. I can back away from the things that God's put on my plate to do. Paul was still at it. He's still preaching Jesus. Why? Because that's exactly what God had called Paul to do. His discouragement didn't dictate how faithful he's going to be to the, to the call that God had given him. And we need to learn from this, church family. Will we go through discouragement? Absolutely. Will there come times when we feel like throwing in the towel? Absolutely. You may be there right now. And yet the promises of God, the calling of God are still true. So if you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, if there looks like there is no light at the end of your tunnel, go back to a time where you know God called me to this. He put this on my plate. This ministry is what God has given me. I'm not talking about vocational ministry, like I'm to be a deacon or an elder or serve in the nursery. I'm talking about what has God put you? Is, Is it a mother? Is it a father? Is it a grandparent? Is it the person in your community, in your neighborhood, that, that's the, Christ, the only Christian there? Look, look at the ministry that God's placed in your life and recommit to doing the thing that he's called you to do, even when you don't feel like it. Even when discouragement is so overwhelming you can't see anything. Was it easy for Paul to continue to preach during this time? I can't imagine that it would be. No, I can't imagine that it would be. But by the help of the Spirit, he's faithful to do it, even when he doesn't feel like it. Even when his affections and his emotions are all over the place, the Spirit's help enables him to continue what God called him to. Well, the the school of hard knocks is in session, and the punches just keep coming for Paul. Uh, In verse 5, Paul is preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. Then look what it says in verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. 
I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So in the midst of this discouragement, Paul is opposed and reviled again. He's not even through this season yet, and and he meets more conflict. He meets more uh, persecution. And so he shook off his garments. Literally, he didn't want the dust or the sand or the dirt from the synagogue to be on his clothes. That's how done he was. (laughs) Let me put this in our, our translation, our English today. I'm done with you. I am done. I am, I am done with you. Meaning the Jews in this synagogue, I'm done. I'm done. You're not listening. You're not heeding to the word of God. You're not, and, and on top of that, you're going you're gonna to revile me? I'm done. I'm done. It says from now on he was committed to going to the Gentiles. Side note right here. When you hear anything about Gentiles in Scripture, especially the New Testament, it should make you perk up and pay attention. <laughs> You, you should lean in and, and it should stir your heart because those are our ancestors, right? Like, like if you're Norwegian or Swedish or Danish or German or English or Scotch or Irish or, or Dutch or African, if, that's, if you've ever done your ancestry, like your history, that's where we're from. Th- those Gentiles are us. That's who it's talking about there. And do you know where our ancestors were at this point in history? They were likely living off of acorns and raw meat in a German forest somewhere. They were most likely nomadic. They hadn't learned to cultivate fields yet. The Gentile stock that it says Paul was going to were those of us that were considered barbarians. And Paul says, that's, that's who I want to tell about Jesus. And so when we hear that in Scripture, we should rejoice that, that, that God didn't leave us in a field uh, looking for acorns and eating raw meat in Germany somewhere, that, that this is who Paul went to, and that's the conduit through which the gospel came to our ancestors and eventually to you. That's really good news. And so that's where Paul goes. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm done with the synagogue. I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. And yes, there was more discouragement but when God closes one door, another door opens, which leads to our second point. God provides encouragement through fruitful ministry. God provides encouragement through fruitful ministry. Continue reading with me in the text. It says, And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were moved and were baptized. Watching how the Lord provides encouragement here is incredible. One door closes, clearly closes, slams shut in Paul's face as they're reviling him in the synagogue for preaching Jesus. And at the exact same time, another door opens. And in this case, it's right next door at Justice's house. And, uh, and so Paul simply moves the, the sign, uh, Sunday morning worship gathering from the synagogue and puts it in Justice's yard right next door and says, we're meeting here now. And, and that's exactly what happens. God closed the door, but he opens another one. And note, too, that, uh, that the seed that Paul sowed in the synagogue begins to bear fruit, right? This, too, was a grace from God. Even when Paul says, I'm done with you, you clowns in the synagogue are not getting it and you want to you revile me, fine, I'm done. He leaves, but God didn't say that. God's not done. And in fact, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, came and found Paul, right? He says, hey, this Jesus stuff you've been talking about, this guy Jesus that you say is the Messiah who died on a cross as as our our true and ultimate sacrificial lamb, tell me more about this because this sounds like the best news I've ever heard. 
And he's born again. And his household, they were born again. And what a joy that the Lord shows up even in our discouragement and provides fruit. That these Gentiles are hearing and believing. You see that in the text. They believed and were baptized. They were born again. They heard the gospel. They were born again. And they identified with Christ through baptism. That's what's going on there. They're they're giving their lives to Jesus. And so even when Paul's done, the Lord's not done. It wasn't Paul. We, we know from all these accounts that, that the Lord is the one bringing about fruit. He's the one bringing about new birth. It's always God, that God, it's always God that brings about salvation. And here we see it as something that the Lord would use to encourage Paul. His labors were not in vain. Note, too, that this fruitful ministry, and the Lord provides Crispus and these other uh, believers, everyone in Crispus' household, that are born again, that fruitful ministry probably didn't look like Paul expected or would have planned himself, right? I mean, the fact that he's still in the synagogue. When Silas and Timothy arrive, they catch back up with him. They've, they've not seen him in a while, and they find him in the synagogue, and he's preaching. And so from all accounts, Paul's plan was that he would go into this synagogue. These are Jewish folks that are looking for a Messiah. He would inform them, hey, the Messiah has come. You need to know about him. His name is Jesus. They would believe. They would begin to follow Jesus. And success for Paul would look like this synagogue turning into the first Christian church in Corinth because of all the the Jewish background folks that are coming to faith in Christ. But God had different plans. That wasn't what fruitfulness looked like in God's plan. In God's plan, Justice's house would be that first church building, and there wouldn't be a massive drove of, of Jews coming to faith in Christ, but a few would. Crispus and his household would. And these other Gentile background folks, they would. Friends, listen, in your life, fruitfulness may not look like what you envisioned it would 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. God may have plans that look radically different from your plans or what you thought life would have turned out like or what you expected it would look like by this point in your life. And let me just suggest to you, church family, that his plans are infinitely better than yours. Whatever you envisioned it would be, if it's not looking like that, trust that his plans are better. And the fruit that is bearing in your life, even if it seems small compared to what you hoped it would be, is exactly what God has promised because he's faithful to finish in you the work that he started. Well, let's continue because God's not finished encouraging the weary Paul yet. We've seen a substantial reasons for Paul to be encouraged. Priscilla and Aquila, Silas and Timothy, fruitful ministry where folks are, are coming to Jesus. And yet in the midst of what seems to be some really good things, Paul falls prey again to fear and discouragement. And we know this because God shows up in a vision and gives some encouragement to Paul directly. And we're given what that is. We're given that in our scripture, in our text this morning. And so in our time left this morning, I want to I I spend a few moments in this part of the text where God is encouraging Paul, speaking to Paul in this vision, uh, because I believe there's encouragement for us this morning in at church. Uh, but before we do that, we need a little bit of background. Because you may be wondering, why is Paul feeling so, so discouraged? Why is he still so depressed and full of fear? Why is he trembling still? Right? That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 2. It seems like some good things are going on in recent months. Why is God visiting him to bring encouragement? Well, like the Old Testament prophet Elijah, Paul has been under excruciating tension for a long time. And his desire, his want to bounce back is not there. He's reeling from multiple encounters that we've already mentioned. His wounds are still probably not even healed from when he was beaten. He's tired. And on top of all of that, you have that we've not even mentioned this morning in the text... 
an incredible amount of spiritual darkness that surrounded him. I'll give you a little bit of background on Corinth because that'll help us to see it. Corinth was the largest, uh, most cosmopolitan city in Greece. Not in the world, but in Greece at this time. And estimates are that there was a population of 750,000 people in uh, Corinth at this time. Now, that doesn't sound large by today's standards, but by those, de- those days' standards, that was a large, large city. And, uh, and, and I know we've mentioned a lot of cities in our time through Acts, and it seems like we just get to a new city and you're like, I don't, I don't know why that matters. These cities I've never heard of, or, or maybe that I have heard of, but have no understanding of why it would matter for us in understanding the text. Tim Keller in his commentary helps to give us a, maybe a comparison. I think it's helpful. I'll give it to you. He says this, Athens, that's where we were at last week on Mars Hill, he said it's sort of like Boston. It's the intellectual city. It's where all the uh, philosophers are. It's where the thinkers are. And then you get Ephesus, which we'll see next week. And, uh, and that's sort of like Los Angeles. It's kind of where pop culture's at. It's where the entertainment and celebrity uh, status is at. That's where you would go for all of that. Rome, which we've heard and, and mentioned a few times, is like Washington, D.C. That's the political center. That's the place where the emperor's at. It's where the government's at. That's where everything's being, decisions are being made and passed down to these other cities. And then you have Corinth, where Paul is at today in our text. And it's sort of like New York City. It's a commercial center. It's a hub. It's a port. It's where all of these trade routes come together. And so Julius Caesar had just rebuilt this trade city, and there was not a building there when Paul was there that was over 100 years old at this point. It was an ancient city that that Julius Caesar had rebuilt. It was flourishing in every way because of its uh, seaports and trade routes. There were people everywhere. It was a booming city at this time. And financially, it was was in its heyday. But morally, it was bankrupt. Corinth was, uh, was an awful city known for its sexual promiscuity. In fact, if you look in some dictionaries, even today... Uh, the word Corinthian is synonymous with a person who lives a sexually immoral lifestyle. And, uh, and there was a temple in Corinth dedicated to Aphrodite or, or Venus, same goddess there, the goddess of love. And as a part of their worship to, to Aphrodite or, or Venus, the, 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 they had t- a thousand female sex slaves that would go out into the city, the streets of Corinth, as prostitutes looking for sailors that have ported in that city, and they would have sex with them as worship unto uh, Venus. And this characterized the, the religious, that's what the religious people were doing in Corinth. So you can imagine, you get the picture of how wicked this city is, how, 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 uh, how this city has fallen so far in its brokenness. And this is where Paul's doing ministry. This, these are the people that, that, folk, that the folks that Paul is trying to reach with the gospel that he's trying to share Jesus with. And you can see why he's content, he could just continues to be discouraged. It's a spiritual battle. I mean, he's fighting spiritual warfare here. He's surrounded by wickedness. In Athens, remember last week in Athens, he, he, he experienced cultural shock. Here he's experiencing moral shock. It's unlike anything he's ever seen. The wickedness, the depravity of this city. I know there are some of you here this morning that are saying, yeah, I feel the same thing in my world. I feel the same thing today in our community, in our state, in in my workplace maybe. It's increasingly difficult to live out my faith before Jesus because I feel like there's just so much spiritual oppression. There's so much pushback. There's so much darkness that I feel like I'm fighting against every single day in the places that I go. Well, God comes to Paul in that place with encouragement. It's in that headspace. It's in that place where, where, where Paul feels just so broken down that the Lord comes to him with encouragement. And so let's read the, these couple verses and see what the Lord says to Paul and then make application in our lives. Look at verse 9. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, 
Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. A third point for us this morning in the sermon is this. God provides encouragement by telling us we have no need to fear. God gives us encouragement by reminding us we, we don't have a reason to fear. That's what he tells Paul. Don't be afraid. He was given to, to fear and discouragement, even though he's experiencing some spiritual success in, in the preaching of the gospel. And it may seem strange to us why he would be there, why he would be in that headspace at this time with some success, until you realize that the success is actually what he feared, right? I mean, think about Paul's track record here. Think about his experiences in other cities. Success, he preaches the gospel, people repent and, and come to know the Lord, and as they begin to tell people about Jesus, it's, it starts a stir, as Christianity comes into conflict with the other religions and beliefs around them, and this leads to persecution. We've seen it in Pisidian Antioch. We've seen it in Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. All of these places, people were converted, born again, and it led to Paul being chased out of town. And even though he would want to rejoice in that, you can imagine how that just gets plumb discouraging. From Paul's perspective, the future was completely predictable. There's coming a day, probably pretty soon, when there will be a riot and then just like that football, I'm getting punted out of town again. And it's over and over and over. This pattern was clear to Paul. And so Paul, listen, listen, church, Paul was worrying about troubles that he was not yet even facing. Is it possible that some of us do that? That's a temptation for us, church, to worry about things that we're not even facing yet. And Thomas Carlyle was a Scottish philosopher that lived in London in the 1800s. Uh, he was known for his essays, his, his writing, his translation work. He was a historian. He was a mathematician. He was a teacher, considered one of the most influential people in uh, the Victorian era. And if you go today to his famous home in London, you can take a tour of it, and, uh, and they'll show you on this tour uh, that he, he had built in his home an almost soundproof room that in that day was pretty incredible, where he could uh, drown out the noise from the busy street and do his writing in silence. Except for one of his neighbors uh, had this rooster that several times a day, at night, especially at night and in the morning, uh, he says, gave way to vigorous self-expression, <laughs> this rooster. And, uh, and he goes and, and he talks to his neighbor, the owner of this rooster, and as he's doing so, the neighbor points out that this rooster only crows like three times a day, man. Like, surely that can't be that terrible of an annoyance. And Carlisle says to him, but if you only knew what I suffer waiting on that rooster to crow. It hadn't even happened yet, but the buildup, the anticipation, the fact that it's coming is in my head. I know it's coming and I can't deal with it because I'm expecting it. It's way worse than the actual crowing of the rooster. And I feel like that's us. Like there's some degree worrying about stuff all the time that hasn't even happened yet. We're professionals at this church. We're professionals at borrowing trouble, right? Imagining things that are not even on our plate yet. We feel exhausted as we wait for something disastrous or unpleasant to happen. What if I fail at this task? What if we plan this family picnic and it rains? What if, what if they twist my words and they take something that I've not said and make me out to be the bad guy? And in doing, in doing this, we go through and live out a thousand tribulations that we were never meant to go through and probably never will. But we do that to ourselves. Worry and anxiety. And through this vision, God's opening words to Paul. The first thing he says to him is, he shows him he cares for him. He shows him he loves him. And he says, you don't have any reason to be afraid. You have no reason to be afraid. 
Friends, these are encouraging words that the Spirit has not given us a spirit of fear. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And time and time again, the Scriptures tell us, Stop worrying about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about anything. Because we're loved by God, we have no reason to worry or fear about what this life brings. Fourth thing, God provides encouragement by telling us to keep ministering. God provides encouragement by telling us to keep at it, keep plowing, keep our heads down and keep ministering. That's the next thing God says to Paul in this vision. He says, go on speaking and don't be silent. You can imagine as Paul looked back on this time and and he recognized the continual preaching, right? He's writing to the Corinthians, that letter that he wrote to this church sometime later. He looks back on this time and it's, it's clear to him, this wasn't my ability. This wasn't me. I wanted to be done. And then he says, I'm going back to 1 Corinthians 2. I'm picking up right where I left off where he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And then verse 4 he says this, And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrating the spirit and power of God, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's writing back to this church in Corinth, the one that was started in Justice's house, and he's saying, My speech, my message to you in those early days, that was all the spirit. Because I had nothing left in the tank. I had nothing to bring to you. And if it was anything effective, it was that God did it. Weakness, listen friends. Weakness is the secret strength of God's most effective servants. That we would come to a place where we know I am weak. I don't have the power to do this. In my own strength, I might as well just be done. But God shows up and he does it. He shows up in my weakness and and, and does it. And so why, why do we continue going on about the ministries God called us to, the things that he's called us to? Because that's who it's relying upon. It's upon God, not our own strength. And so we rely upon him and we watch as his power is made perfect in our weakness. And so whatever we do, it's accomplished, as Paul says here, unto the glory of God, because it's God who did it. Let's continue. The fifth thing, God provides encouragement by reminding us of his promised protection. God provides encouragement by reminding us of his promised protection. That's what Paul says to, or that's what God says to Paul in verse 10. He assures him, I'm with you. I'm with you, Paul. And, that, and that just those four words have incredible, unending practical application for us. God says, don't fear. Keep going. I'm with you. Do you understand, believer, what that means for you? That the sovereign God of the universe, the one who speaks and things exist, that God says, I'm with you. I'm with you every step of this journey. Lord tells Paul, no one's going to attack you to harm you. No one's going to hurt Paul in Corinth. It doesn't matter that in previous, month, previous months that wasn't true. Paul was, was suffered terribly during that time. And in the future, it won't be true. When Paul leaves Corinth, he'll continue to undergo it's terrible persecution and troubles. But for this particular window of time, it is true. Because God has promised no one's going to hurt you. No one's going to come against you and hurt you. And so God's protection doesn't mean for us, church family, as we make application here. God's protection doesn't mean that we won't go uh, through difficulties. God's protection doesn't mean that we won't feel depression or discouragement or, or hard days in darkness. But it does mean, God's promise to be with us does mean that there's ultimately nothing in this life that's going to do us eternal damage. Right? So, so whatever the day looks like, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how uh, depressed or discouraged you feel, there's nothing that's going to come against you in this world. If you're his, that's going to do you harm. You want to you kill me? Fine, I'll just go be with Jesus. 
Like, do you hear the encouragement in that? That's how Paul can say to, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Because for me to be with Jesus, if you think that's the worst thing that can happen to me, man, you got it all twisted. I could just go be with my king. Are you kidding me? There's nothing that you can bring against me that's going to harm me. And this is encouraging for us, church family. No one can hurt you. No one can harm you. Number six, God provides encouragement by reminding us that our work is not in vain. Your work is not in vain, believer. God says to Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. Now, God's not telling Paul something that he already knows, right? Those are encouraging words to Paul. And notice that Paul doesn't say, well, since you have many people in this city, in this town, I'll just be going now. I'll let them do their thing since they're already your people. No, Paul accepts what the Lord's saying to mean that there are people in Corinth who are not currently saved, followers of Jesus, that will be saved through the faithful preaching and teaching of, 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 the, of the Word of God by Paul. In other words, God is telling Paul that there are people in Corinth that are now lost pagans that are running after sexual idolatry that are going to come to be Jesus' people, his children, and they don't even realize it yet. That's incredible. He needed to be faithful to preach the word of God because God had purposed that there were some that were going to believe. Some of the Corinthian people that were tired of these fleshly pursuits, some of these people that were searching for something to fill a hole in them, fill a void in them uh, that only God could feel, that their sexual lust could not feel, that they're, they're getting to a place that, 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 that the Lord is drawing them to himself. They would hear, right, that because of their sin, through Paul's preaching, that because of their sin, they're separated from God. Because of their own choices and their own sin, their sin has made them separated from God. But the glorious good news of the gospel is that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross so that he could take their sexual lust and their, their, uh, their, their sinful desires and their idolatry. He would take that on himself on the cross and say, I'll give you my righteousness. That I follow God perfectly. And that's the beautiful, scandalous exchange of the gospel. That Jesus takes their sin, these Corinthian sinners' sin, on himself and gives them eternal life and forgiveness and freedom from the slavery that they're in bondage to because of their own sin. And, and God is saying to Paul, Paul, I have some folks ready to hear the gospel. Be faithful to proclaim it because there are some in this city that are mine and they need to hear about Jesus. Friends, I can't help but to believe that there may be some even here today. And that's you. That, that, that you didn't come here thinking that you, that you were going to hear the gospel and it'd be the greatest news you've ever heard. You came maybe to make mama happy or to make a spouse happy or, or just because that's what people do in the South is come to church on a Sunday. And yet, for the first time, you're hearing that your sin separated you from a living God and that what you deserve because you rebelled against the holy God is hell. Punishment for all eternity because of that sin. And yet for the first time, you're hearing that Jesus said, I'll take it. I'll take it from you and I'll consume it in myself on the cross so that you can be given freedom and forgiveness and life. And for the first time ever, that's the most incredible news you've ever heard. Would you today give your life to Jesus? Be like one of these Corinthians that, that they didn't even know it yet. They had no awareness that God was working around them and sending Paul to them. And they give their lives to Jesus and become his people. I encourage you with this today, believer. Think about this from Paul's perspective, too. Paul's labor was not in vain because the Lord had already purposed to do something with him. And I'll say the same for you. The Lord doesn't start a work and then abandon it and say, oh, well, it didn't work out like I thought it would. That's not how the Lord works. And so whatever you're laboring in for him is not in vain, church. 
Your labor for the Lord is not in vain. If you feel like you're just spinning your wheels, your labor is not in vain. For the, for the mama that may feel like, hey, I've got this child and I've been pouring into them. I've been trying to disciple them to know the Lord. And it seems like they take joy in disobeying me. Your labor is not in vain, mama. Keep at it. For the husband that you've been praying for your wife, God, would you save her? And for years, maybe even decades, there seems to be no movement in her life towards Christ. Brother, it's not in vain. Labor unto the Lord. Pray for your wife. Share the good news with her. It's not in vain. For the, for the school teacher that you feel like, man, I've got the most thankless job in the entire world. I spend all this time with these kids and they don't seem to get it. It seems like they hate me and, and, and I don't even know why I'm doing it. Your labor's not in vain, friend. And you can apply that to whatever you do on a daily basis. Whatever your life looks like on a day-to-day basis, it's not in vain. If you're living unto the Lord, if your work is worship unto Him, it's not in vain and it'll produce fruit in season. Continue and watch how God uses your work for His glory. Let's continue in seeing how this text wraps up. Verse 11. It says, And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, uh, the Jews made, uh, made an, a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about, he didn't open his mouth. He was about to open his mouth. Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At century he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. But he came to Ephesus. And he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay long for a longer period, he declined. But taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Paul stayed 18 months here in Corinth. And for Paul, if you've been studying with us through the book of Acts, that's a long time. He's putting down roots to have stayed 18 months. I mean, that's like a, that's like a long time for this brother. And, and many came to believe upon Christ. Perhaps even hundreds came to believe upon Christ during this time here. And as Paul imagined, it wasn't long until some persecution arose. And yet, unlike other times, they charged Paul with with starting a riot. They charged Paul with rebelling against the government. And however, even though that accusation was the same, unlike those other times, exactly what God promised to be true was true. This accusation fell upon deaf ears. It backfired against his accusers. And the Lord's promises were true. And after a period of, of, of freedom and peace and fruitful ministry, Paul moves on and we see a travel log that gets us from here to where Paul ends up in Syria. Listen, believer, and this is the way we're wrapping up. If you're discouraged today, if you feel like I've been through a season where it feels like the devil's thrown the kitchen sink at me, and I'm just discouraged, I feel beat up, I feel depressed, and maybe even dealing with some serious depression, like depression, depression fearful of everything, anxious about everything, not sure about what this next season is going to bring. Listen, friends, our God is a promise-keeping God. And what was true of Paul and Corinth is true of you today. Our God is a promise-keeping God. And here's his message to you today. Don't be afraid. Stop looking and expecting trouble. Stop looking at your circumstances around you and letting them dictate your faithfulness to him. Keep ministering to those around you. Keep caring. Look to him. He loves you. Keep speaking his name and believe that he's with you. He's promised to be with you. He promised to never leave you or forsake you. 
Believe that he's the only protection that you need. Believe that it will bear fruit. That your faithfulness in due season because of the work of the Holy Spirit, not that you're good and able in yourself and your own efforts to bear fruit, it will bear fruit because he's blessed it. That's his promise to you. He who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. In 480 B.C., King Xerxes led the Persians to invade Greece. It's a famous story. Most of you have probably heard of it. Leonidas is the, the king of Sparta at this time, and he led a small band of Greek allies to defend Greece from this invading king, the, the, the Persians and, and his army. And as these hordes of, of invaders were approaching, uh, one, one man ran up to Leonidas, one of his soldiers, and with fear in his voice, he said, General, Leonidas, when the Persians shoot their arrows, there are so many of them that the sky darkens. And Leonidas, Leonidas turned and looked at the man and, and famously said this line. He said, then we'll fight in the shade. We'll fight in the shade. Friends, if, if, if lost folks can get up and fight like that under a lost king for a lost cause, then friends, how much more should the body of Christ look at the world around us and say, I don't care what's coming to this world. I don't care what circumstances come my way. I don't care how dark it gets or what the devil throws at me. I'm serving King Jesus. He's worth my faithful allegiance. And it doesn't matter how dark the day gets, how discouraging it gets, it's worth it to faithfully serve my king. And I can trust in him because he's always promised to be with me. Let's follow him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is salve for our wounds. When we feel exhausted and beaten up and discouraged, when it feels like our family's falling apart and our work is futile and vain and everything we touch fails, that God, those things don't, don't mean that your faithfulness is changing or that you've turned and looked the other way or that you've abandoned us but that those things are meant to drive us to our knees in more and more faith and trust and commitment to you. And so, God, I pray that for this room full of believers, that, God, as they've given their lives to you and repented of sins and followed you, that, God, you would encourage and lift their hearts today, that their circumstances wouldn't dictate their faithfulness, that their discouragement wouldn't lead them to disobedience, but that right now, in this moment, by the power of your Spirit, you would meet them here. And they would leave from this place trusting Christ more than they were when they got here. And Father, I pray if there's one here today that hasn't given their life to you, they don't know the freedom and fullness that comes with trusting Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day where they say, Jesus, I see now that you traded places with me, that you exchanged your goodness for my filth on the cross. And then you rose from the dead, proving yourself to be God. Jesus, I pray for lives to be changed today as a result of your Holy Spirit making your, your word effective in the hearts of men and women in this room. Bring us to obedience. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you would stand, I'm going to respond to the word this morning. Here's how I'm going to ask us to respond. Here's your invitation. If you've never trusted Christ, 
You'd say this morning, Matt, I, I don't think there's been a time where I've come to Christ and repented of my sins and trusted in his work on the cross for salvation. I think I've done some churchy stuff. I think I've tried to live a good life, but I've been relying upon that instead of the work of Jesus for salvation, and I need to be saved today. Here's what I'm gonna ask you. I'm gonna ask you to step out right now. Might be a little awkward. You might feel strange, but know that in this room, there's nothing but joy in people's hearts because you gave your life to Jesus. Anybody there? Just say, hey, today's, today's the day I wanna do it. I wanna give my life to Jesus. All right, then here's where we're also at, believers. Here's the invitation to you. As we sing, as we have an opportunity to pray right now, go before the Lord and ask him to make you obedient, to help produce obedience in your heart by the power of his spirit. Though your circumstances are discouraging, you, you feel depressed, you feel like there's, there's darkness surrounding you, it's a cloud over you right now, and everything your hand touches is falling apart. Ask the Lord right now to produce obedience, perseverance, grace, community, to engage in the body here that would provide those things for you and commit today to following him regardless of what comes your way. And then when you finish praying that prayer, let's sing together because he's good and worthy to be worshiped. Let's respond.